0: Father, we ask that uh, as we gather here this morning that uh, truly uh, we would glorify you for all the days of our life. Um, You've been so good to us, and as we consider uh, your immense love for us, uh, your amazing grace for us, um, a mercy that is new even this morning as we woke up, uh, that we are truly blessed, a blessed people, because uh, we have been freed from our uh, enslavement to sin through faith and trust in Jesus, uh, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And uh, Father, we thank you uh, that we are part of a, uh, a church family, that we can uh, lift one another up, encourage one another. And Fathers, we consider those that uh, are, are part of our family. Uh, we ask for uh, just special encouragement for uh, Sarah this morning. Uh, Father, amongst all of the Uh, no doubt uh, questions uh, in her own mind uh, as she uh, contemplates everything that's going on. Father, we ask for clarity. Uh, We ask for her to fix her eyes on your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Uh, that you would be gracious uh, as all the details work themselves out, and uh, Father, we'll look to you uh, for uh, the increase in relation to that. Uh, Father, too, for the Brown family, uh, as they had a a pretty good uh, scare yesterday with this automobile accident. Um, and Father, uh, we just don't know what one moment can do. Uh, and so, Father, we thank you for uh, your blessing and the uh, watch care over uh, both Jen and Macy that they uh, uh, not only survived the accident, but Father, you were able to um, have it so they could go home last night. And so we pray for healing. We pray for uh, them as well to help uh, Uh, Just be thankful for your watch care over them. Uh, And Father, we we thank you that we can lift each other up and encourage one another through prayer. And as we open up your word this morning, as we consider the impact that false teaching and false teachers can have on the church, uh, as we take a look at 15 different questions, uh, we ask that you would uh, draw us to your word, uh, that your spirit would teach us uh, and guide us in all truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today you're going to need your Bible drill arms and fingers because we're not going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1 uh, this morning. Um, As we come to the close of this little mini section here at the beginning of 1 Timothy that I entitled Guard the Church Against False Teachers, this is part four, uh, fourth and final. Uh, But I thought what I would do today as we've already taken a look at Um, Our context in the warning against false teachers here in chapter one. You know, we could, you know, do go one of two different directions. One would be for us to all of a sudden look and start pointing out all of the false teaching, false teachers. uh, And, you know, there's a time and place for those things, um, you know, as far as, you know, recognizing uh, things that are not in line with the Word of God. Uh, but there's also a way in which we can look at it this from a positive aspect and actually see what the Word of God has to say in relation to to false teachings that have crept into the church or are trying to push their way into the church today. Uh, and that's how I'm going to go about it. Um, as you look at the back of your bulletin, that is not a misprint. Um, I am going to get through 15 questions uh, I did this morning, um, but you know, the second service, you know, there's unless someone starts doing this at about noon. We're, uh, don't worry, we'll, we'll be done in time. Um, but all joking aside, uh, as we, we take a look at this, um, what we believe is important. Because we can be fully convinced of something that we believe in and have it could be completely false. It could be a lie. It could be uh, us just ignoring the truth in order to feel good about what we're doing where we justify things. Um, we can maybe not know any better and allow you know, different thinking, different doctrines, as you know Paul put it, uh, coming into our world and changing not only how we look at the world, but how we look at God, how we look at ourselves. Uh, and I think it's important for us to have a, a sure foundation. Uh, and my first question this morning is by design. Uh, Because if we don't have the answer to this first question, then the rest really doesn't matter. Uh, Because otherwise, the other questions, you know, we could all take a straw poll and decide what we believe the answers would be, or we can go to the Word of God uh, as truth and see what God says about these things. So the first question that I'm going to start out with this morning is, can the Bible be trusted? You know, there are many books written. I've never written a book. I probably will never write a book. Uh, I've written, you know, uh, letters. I've written sermons, I've written devotionals. Um, but, you know, everything that we write down, everything that we contemplate, everything that we um, pen are based in the. Uh, things that we have been conditioned to believe, things that we, you know, have from our upbringing, from the things that we participate now as, you know, either, you know, children or adults, because everything affects everything. If I can borrow a line from a movie, um, yeah, <laughs> uh, because again, there's there's cause and effect uh, as we, we take a look at. Uh, the Bible, if we think it's just another good book or another resource or a, uh, a book of uh, intellectual pursuit, then that's going to affect how we engage the world. Uh, it's going to affect our witness to the world. Uh, and what the world needs to see is the truth being lived out, not someone's interpretation of the truth. Or what, as we'll take a look at, you know, the answer to the question, can my truth be different from your truth? But I'd like to begin by, you know, going to 2 Peter chapter 1. uh, And you can turn there. Again, I told you you're going to be bouncing all over the place this morning. Uh, And as you're turning there, uh, know this, that each answer to these questions was not meant to be exhaustive. There's many scriptures I could have pulled to you know, make a defense, as it were, of the faith, a defense of the answers to these questions. I'm just going to give you a, just a little bit, a verse or two, uh, to consider it. Uh, but all of it uh, is based in the validity of question number one and its answer. You know, can we trust the Bible, or can the Bible be trusted? Second Peter chapter 1, I'd like to begin reading in verse 16. It says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So stop there for a moment. So notice they saw the majesty of God. Okay, so we have one aspect in which they have seen. Verse 17 goes on to say, "'For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, "'and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, "'this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased.'" Verse 18, "'We ourselves heard.'" So we have them seeing and as well as hearing. "'They heard this very voice born from heaven, "'for we were with him on the holy mountain.'" Now verse 19, and we have something more sure, more sure than something you can see with your eyes and hear with your ears, okay? So something more sure, the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention. That prophetic word being the word of God, what God has spoke, what God has revealed about himself and about us and about what is... Uh, In the past, what is now present and what is yet to come. As a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, so no word, no uh, word that came forth in the Holy Scriptures comes from someone's own interpretation. So in other words, This is not just a bunch of writings by a bunch of guys that decided to write something down. It is the very Word of God. How do I know that? Well, we'll keep on going. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we take a look at the Bible, the entirety of the Word of God, which if you don't have a Bible, you need one. But when we take a look at this, this is not just, you know, them coming up with, as he said, cleverly devised myths. This is not just some doctrine that is good for you to, to readjust and to refine your life around. This is the very Word of God. Because if it's not the Word of God, then we don't need the Bible. We don't even need to be in this building. We could get together wherever, say in a coffee shop, and we can all decide and talk about what we believe is the truth. We see, God did not leave us that way. He did not leave us without a revelation of Himself, did not leave us without the truth. And saying here that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So Paul didn't say, I'm going to write the book of Romans and here you go. He wrote the book of Romans as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that God could assure that the word of God is actually the word of God and not the word of men. He utilized their personalities. He utilized who they were, their livelihood, to, uh, as a, a way in which he could communicate his truth, which is the truth, what we sung about just a few minutes ago, your truth, so that we would know the truth. Otherwise, if the Word of God is not true that maybe I should just tell you to enlarge your vision or to develop a healthy self-image or to discover the power of your thoughts and words and choose to be happy. Does that sound like something you would like to do? Maybe I just need to give you a nice toothy, greeny smile to go with it. But see, the thing is, if God's word is not the truth, if it is not the word of God, then it's just one more resource, one more book written, that has really no impact unless I deem that it has impact. So either it's the word of God as the Spirit moved men along so that God could ensure that we would know who he is and know the truth about our condition before a holy God and that we need a Savior, which is Jesus Christ, then it's anybody's guess as to what we should believe. And that can change over time. Culture can t- change, you know, what we, we should believe. But if it's something that is the truth, that is timeless, that is always applicable, then we can trust it. It says no prophecy. I want you to consider for a moment that there are over 300 prophecies concerning Christ's coming. Over 300. Probability speaking. Just pick eight of those, any eight you want to choose. Just for eight of those prophecies to come to, into existence where it was prophesied hundreds of years later and have it not be just partially correct, but 100% accurate because it is coming from the God who is truth, who cannot lie and is not just making things up. Just for eight of those, about one person, to be completely true and be fulfilled... 10 to the 17th power. That's the probability of it. Just eight. We're talking over 300. Every prophecy about Jesus Christ was not just, you know, bits and pieces here that the prophets just partially got right. No, it was the very word of God so that even though it was 700 years prior that it was prophesied, that it came exactly right. Right? Even down to where Jesus was born. That he would be the suffering servant. That his people would reject him. Okay. Think about the sheer magnitude of that. 10 with 17 zeros. Say double that. And I'm sure probability wise, I'm probably butchering probability. But this is no, that it gets a lot bigger the more you add to it. And see, what that does is it gives testimony to the fact that this is actually the, the word of God, that it is God who breathed these words. So its source is 100% true, 100% holy, 100% righteous. And so therefore, can we trust the Bible? Yes, we can. I like what Pastor Vody Bauckham said in relation to this because he sums this up very succinctly. He says, I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. See, that's why we can choose to believe the Bible because it is actually the Word of God, the Creator, the One who has eternally existed, who has no beginning and no end, who does not lie, who always tells us the truth. So can we believe the Bible? Yes, we can. And that sets the stage for all the rest of these because guess what? I'm not going to let you know what my opinion is. I'm going to let the Word of God speak in relation to what can be false teachings that are coming into the church or coming from the culture and the culture dictating to the church what it should look like. So question number two, can you trust your heart? Disney thinks you should. Follow your heart. Trust yourself. Your heart will never lead you astray. If only that were true, but it's not. How do I know? Because of what the word of God tells me. Jeremiah 17, nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. So my heart is not good. My heart does not put forth something that should cause me to trust it. Matter of fact, my heart is most often going to lead me astray. Because often what they're saying is, is you just need to follow your emotions. Set, set your mind aside. Don't think through what is logical, don't think through what is right or what you know to be right, no matter what your source is, just, just trust your feelings. Well, the word of God says something to the contrary. It doesn't say trust your heart. It says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord. As a matter of fact, trust in the Lord with all your heart. So don't trust in your heart, because it can mislead you, but trust in the God who will never mislead you. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. So don't trust your heart. Trust in the Lord. Question number three. Can my truth be different from your truth? Well, this supposes that truth is subjective. And is truth, a truth statement, subjective to the individual, or is it objective? Well, it tells us in John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, because God is the source of all truth. He is the one that declares what is true, As the one who never lies. but see, our hearts can be deceived. They're desperately sick, and so we don't know oftentimes what the truth is because we want to be able to manipulate what we say is the truth, which is really just our opinion and our feelings and how we want to engage the world or what we want to justify in our existence so that we end up ignoring the truth or saying that that's my truth which is just a false statement. It's illogical to say that I have my truth and you have your truth. There is truth and we all have an opinion about everything. You don't have to agree with my opinion no more than I have to agree with yours. But we can never argue with the truth because that means we're arguing with God himself. John 14, 6, that's why Jesus was able to proclaim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 17, 17, in his high priestly prayer, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So not only is God truth itself and the source of all truth, but what God says is also the truth because God cannot lie. He is not like man. He doesn't have a heart that is deceitful above all else. He is perfect and holy in all of his ways. But what does man do? Well, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, which is the polar opposite of God, which, you know, who is righteousness itself by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Push it down, push it away. I don't want the truth to be part of my existence because that means I'm going to see myself as God sees me and I don't want God or anyone else to see me that way. There is no such thing as subjective truth. There is the truth and your subjective opinion About the truth. Fourth, is God distinct from his creation? See, there are some that would put forth and believe that there is a cosmic Christ. That somehow God is mystically in all things. So at one point when you've picked up that nice smooth stone, you know, off of the shore and tried to skip it across the lake, you were actually skipping God across the lake. Because they believe that God is in everything from the the sunrise to a sunset. You know, everything that God created, they superimpose God into it as if God is not separate from his creation as the creator. But that somehow God himself is also created and that he is just in everything. And that makes us all one. So what it does is it just blurs everything and puts everything into this cosmic blob so that we, we miss, one, who God is, but we also miss that we are sinners in the presence of a holy God and that we need a savior. Because as if everything is God and, and, and we're all one, then guess what? That, that really, by you know, logical conclusion, means that, you know what, if God is in everything and he's in me, then doesn't that make me God as well? But we see we miss the fallenness of sin and we end up losing God in the midst of all of that. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he has preeminence over all creation because Jesus Christ himself is the creator God. How do we know that? Verse 16, for by him all things were created. Nothing created God, God created everything. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He didn't make creation and, and just, you know, split himself apart so that he is in everything and everything is one. He is separate from his creation. Verse 17, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. You know, he is not everything and therefore holding everything together. He, as the almighty creator of all, is holding everything together. He is the sustainer of all life, as well as the ordainer of all life. But God is not in everything, and everything is not God. Number five, is God sovereign? Because if you think about it, every attack of falsehood, every false teacher, what they're trying to do is circumvent and to say that, you know, in their teaching that God is wrong and that they're right. That what I believe supersedes what God says is true. So therefore they are, as it were, robbing God of his sovereignty over all things because they are making themselves God. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 46. Verse 9 says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. How is God different from every other thing that is in the created universe? He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Does that sound like a God that is somehow manipulated by the creation that he made or is he sovereign over all? Is God sovereign? Yes, he is. Sixth, does Satan exist? See, in our current age, there has been this, you know, uh, you know and probably every, you know, other ages, if we look back in history, because nothing is new under the sun, but try to make Satan something that he is not, or to say that Satan really just doesn't exist. He's the figment of people's imagination. You know, there's not really some, you know, uh, evil being that is causing, you know, uh, you know, pain and suffering all over the planet. Well, the scriptures say that Satan is the god of this age, that he is the tempter. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Satan is not on the same par with God. Satan is still a created being. Satan still answers to God. And his doom is sure because he's already been judged by God Almighty. And we're waiting for that to unfold in time. So does Satan exist? Yes, he does. And thinking that he doesn't is not something that we should take and embrace. Remembering what we learned from Ephesians, that we are in a spiritual battle, not of flesh and blood, that our enemy is real. Number seven, does hell exist? What better com- com- comfort for the mind of somebody is that, well, hell does not exist. That there's not a place of judgment, you know, that you know, the wages of sin is death. Uh, that, you know, somehow God wouldn't create such a horrible place to send people. Well, see, the thing is, is that Hell is a real place. Hell does exist. Matthew chapter 25, uh, one of many passages we could turn to, speaks to this. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all uh, the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jumping down to verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See, the thing is that there is only two destinations from this earth. When, you, when your physical body dies, your eternal soul is going to either go to one of two places, experiencing eternal life in the kingdom of God forever in God's presence, or eternal death, which is separation, receiving the just reward for your sin against a holy God. And pretending as if it does not exist does not change its reality. Like I said, you can believe a lie. You can even be deceived in believing something that's not true, but hell is a real place. Sin is real. And so either Jesus takes your sin upon himself and he pays the penalty, the wages for your sin, or you yourself do. Number eight. Is Jesus really God? Can you guys move the slide forward one, please? The slides aren't going. Um, is Jesus really God? Because there are those that would believe that Jesus isn't the Son of God. In John eight fifty eight, Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am." that name that god gave moses as the great i am that name that says i am the eternal god the self-existent one and here is jesus christ himself saying that i am the great i am saying that he and the father as it says in john 10:30 are one because there is one true god three persons father son and holy spirit Colossians 2 9 tell us, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So, in order for us to know who God is in a very powerful way, the most powerful way he could do, Jesus himself took on flesh and dwelt among us. As the one who is the truth, to share the truth with everyone he came in contact with. Not just his opinion, the truth. Question number nine, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Now, we're coming up on Easter, so I'm not going to spend a amount of time here. But really, this is crucial because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. And the Bible is just another moral book that we should read along with other good books. But did Jesus really rise from the dead? Well, Matthew 28 gives account to the Jews that Jesus rose from the dead. Mark 16 gives an account to the Roman world that Jesus died from the dead, or, you know, rise from the dead. If I get my words in the right order. Luke 24 gives a message to the Greek world that Jesus rose from the dead. John 20 gives testimony to the world that Jesus rose from the dead. Acts chapter 1, as the New Testament church is being founded, gives testimony to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 3, as Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth, saying that, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, we all will die Unless Jesus Christ returns before. I can't die for your sins, but when I die, I will pay the penalty for my sins if I don't know Jesus. Verse 4 says that he was buried. Well, typically once someone dies, they're buried. But see, Jesus in his burial, you know, after making the sacrifice on the cross for my sins, buried my sins. And he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I can't raise anybody from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead because he was victorious over sin and death. And notice this in verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul himself speaking. So the question is, how many people does it take to recognize that someone who was once dead, who died from crucifixion, who when the spirit went into his side, blood and water flowed, was taken down, prepared for burial, put into a tomb, and three days later would miraculously rise from the dead and people would see him and talk to him and actually touch him. And think of it this, people were willing to die because they weren't willing to recant that they had seen the risen Lord. Look at how it transformed Paul's life. Someone who was insolent, who was a persecutor of the church. When he met the risen Savior, it changed his life. So did Jesus really rise from the dead? Yes, he did. Question number 10. Is Jesus really the only way? Same man trying to appease his desire to be okay with his existence and be hopeful that God will just accept me the way I am, puts forth that every religion eventually leads to God. Well, there is some truth in that, because there's a day coming where everyone will stand before God. And the question will be whether or not you know Jesus Christ, his son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Is Jesus really the only way? What does Acts 4.12 say? There is salvation in no one else. No one else would do because no one else can make atonement for sin. Only God's Son can. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. See, Jesus did what we could never do, and that is make atonement for our sins, therefore mediating between the God who we broke his law and stand guilty before him as his enemies and actually through faith and trust in what Christ accomplished, reconcile us to the Father. So is Jesus the only way? Yes, he is. Narrow is the way, and few that are that find it. See, God is the one who was wronged. We wronged God. So he has the right, as the creator, to determine how atonement is made. And he made that very clear. That was through the shedding of blood, and no ordinary blood would do. It had to be the sinless Son of God's blood. Which brings us to question number 11. Is Jesus enough to save? Because there are many that would believe that they need to add something to Christ's sacrifice. That it's Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus my good works will qualify me before God or Jesus plus my baptism or Jesus plus going to church every Sunday or Jesus plus, you fill in the blank. So the question is, is is Jesus enough? Did Jesus accomplish what he came to do or do we have to, as it were, mop up and make up the difference between what Jesus Christ did and what is necessary for our forgiveness? Romans 5 Verse 1 and 2 says, therefore, since we've been justified, how? By faith, justified being declared righteous by God. By faith, we have peace with God through who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So is Jesus enough to save me? Yes, he is. I don't need to add to or take away from his salvific work because it was perfect. He meant it when he said it is finished. There was no detail left undone. There was not anything more that needed to be done. God's wrath upon sin had been appeased. And when that gift of faith is given, and faith is exercised in trust in Jesus Christ, we are given a righteousness not our own. And so the question really is, is Jesus' righteousness enough? Well, I sure hope so. No, I don't hope so, I know so. Hebrews 7, 25, consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. That word means completely. He's able to save completely those who draw near to God through him. So again, the key is Jesus. It's not Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus alone, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So is Jesus enough? Yes, he is. Question 12. Does reciting a prayer save me? Absolutely not. Because a prayer can just be words in your mind, have no meaning, no value. We repeat words all the time. Repeat after me. I could get you to repeat some words right now, mean absolutely nothing to you, but could have profound and deep meaning for me. John 3.3 says, Jesus speaking, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So saying a prayer does not save you. No more than walking down the aisle of a church saves you. The thing is, it is about being born again. You can't be the same individual it can't be just empty words because what you're doing is you're agreeing with the God of all that your sin has separated you from him and that the only way in which you can be made right with God is through Jesus Christ. So make sure that you didn't just say a prayer because there are very many well-meaning people that said a prayer and believe that they are saved, but they were just words. There was no true repentance, a turning from sin. Which brings us to question 13 Can I just sin because God will forgive me? Paul in Romans 6, as he was led by the Spirit, wrote What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? It's a rhetorical question. Someone who's been redeemed out of sin is no longer slave to sin should not live in sin as if nothing has happened. There's a transformation that takes place. Verse 3 goes on to define that. Do you know or not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that the result being that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might continue to live in sin. Is that what your translation says? No. We too might walk forward progress, walk in newness of life. So can you sin just because God through Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin as if it means absolutely nothing? No, by no means. Because we are to walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5:17 says it this way, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. Question 14. Are believers little gods? Because there are those today that believe that they are just like God because Jesus Christ made it possible for them to be God. Isaiah 45.5, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. One God. And just because you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ does not mean that you become God because you do not. You will never become God because there is only one God. That's what makes him God. Isaiah two eight. I am the Lord, that, that is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. See, the thing is, is when someone establishes and thinks that they are a little God and have the ability, just as Jesus in the flesh was able to do like he did and did not do that as the Son of God because he ceased being God when he took on flesh, that that is false teaching and at its core is robbing God of the glory that only God deserves. So our believers, little gods, know we are not. We are created in the image of God, and we share the communicable attributes with God, like love, but we'll never be God. I'll never be omnipresent as much as I'd like to be, because that means I could be fishing at the same time I'm doing something else while I'm listening to my wife, and you know, anyway. Amen), Amen. <laughs> unfortunately, I am not omnipotent to have the power to do such. And if I was um, uh, omniscient, I would know better. Question 15. Last one. Who decides what the church believes? You know, I believe that the church has been through a season, as it were, ever since COVID started because there were things coming and telling churches that they could not worship, that they could not gather together. So who tells the church? Do we allow those from without to tell the church what the church is? Because what is the church? Is the church the assembled body of believers that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? Or is it by others that come from without that tell the church, this is who you are and what you believe? And yes, the Bible may say that, but that is something that's not equitable or it's something that you know, doesn't take into consideration everyone else's truth. See, there's a danger when the church loses its focus in relation to who she is and who actually tells her who she is. Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, Jesus, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is Jesus Christ's church. So Jesus tells us what we are to believe, how we are to live, how we get saved, All those things that you have questions to have to come from God, not man. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and following says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself. Not a proxy. Not a pope. Not a pastor. Not the culture Who's the cornerstone? Jesus. And the cornerstone is what everything is pulled from, everything is measured off of. He is the standard in whom the whole structure, verse 21, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, Jesus purchased his bride with his own blood. Therefore, he is the one who owns, he is the one who loves the church. So he tells us, not the culture, because the culture will come in and man will come and want to change the truth. And we have to guard against that. That's what Paul is communicating to young Timothy as he he challenges him to guard the church against false teachers because it can come from without, it can come from within, it can come because of not standing on the truth of the word of God because we don't see the word of God as authoritative. The word of God is the only authority. Everything else falls under it. So how should this inform our lives? I'm going to give you two verses to chew on in this coming week. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. Let me say that again. Every word of God proves true because it is the truth. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So in other words, when we come behind God who is the truth, he will guard us against any error that can come in and try and circumvent, uproot, or change what his... Precious son's blood purchased. Do not, verse 6, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. See, it's not up to me to interpret God's word. God tells me what his word says. What I do is I take that and say, how does that apply to me? And how does that apply to everyone else? Because there's only, as Steve was praying this morning, one interpretation. Whose word is it? It's God's word. So whose interpretation is it? God's. Not the culture, no human being, not the creation, God. Amen? Amen.